Alright, hello everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I am your host. Uh, let me start off with the usual. Please interact with the product, if at all possible. Uh, I like, comment, subscription, star rating, written review, whatever your podcast medium of choice happens to allow you to do, if you would do that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, I'm I'm enjoying the success that the show has now, and I am profoundly grateful for it. I mean, I'm not making money off of this. I do this because I enjoy it. Uh, as, more than anything else. I, I enjoy doing this. So, But the show has grown uh, recently, and I appreciate the heck out of all of you people that have contributed to that, so... If you would consider, again, continuing to do so however you can. If you've done all that, if, uh, share. Tell someone that you know that you think would enjoy the show about it, uh, be that in person or on the interwebs. And all of that helps. So thank you so very much in advance. On the agenda this evening, last night UFC on ESPN Plus 62. The UFC's return to London. It was their first time in... Uh, I think in London, in England at all, since 2019. Uh, the last event previous to this one was the one in, I believe they were in Liverpool, when Hori Masvidal knocked out Darren Till. Uh, they were supposed to have one in 2020. In fact, in March of 2020. Uh, but... That was the first event they had to cancel. It was going to be headlined by Leon Edwards and Tyron Woodley. Um, they had the week before had the epi- the uh, the event in Brazil headlined by Kevin Lee and Charles Oliveira, just without fans. Then they had their spate of you know five was it five or six canceled events, one of those two numbers. And the first one they had to cancel was the London one, uh, and they weren't able to get there in 2021 at all for a variety of reasons, some of which were. UK restriction related, some of which were just other pandemic stuff. But they finally got back there for last night's card, and they brought a bunch of local flavor, some of which were given very, very obvious setup fights, some of which were not. <laughs> we'll get into a few of those when we talk about the fights in particular. Um, yeah, the good, the bad, and the other was, as far as that goes. So we'll be reviewing that card. We'll talk about the combat sports world in general because there was a fair bit of stuff that took place over the last uh, last weekend. You only had the UFC event. You had a glory event that got stopped due to a riot. You had, if you're interested in the freak show side of things, you had uh, Hafthor Bjornsson and Eddie Hall. Um, was that top rank card where um, what's the guy, what's the guy's nickname? Uh, Shushu. Just uh, that, that's just a highlight. We brutalized somebody. You had the, uh, over here in the United States, we had the NCAA National Championship for Wrestling. I'm not going to go over every uh, result in particular, but a few of the more specific ones that I think might be interesting or worth looking up, but, you know, that kind of thing. Then we will preview next week UFC on ESPN Plus 63. Not quite as good on paper as last night's, and you know, whatever news happens to come out uh, between now and then. I have a few points, and then if anything else breaks... We'll, of course, discuss it. All right. With all of that out of the way, 
Let's jump into last night. UFC on ESPN plus 62. Main event. Oh, boy. Tom Aspinall defeats Alexander Volkov via submission, a straight arm bar slash arm lock, uh, however you want to categorize the difference between those two. Uh, 3.45 of the first round. I mean, I think I lean towards Aspinall. I'd have to double check that. Uh, I don't remember my official predictions for all of these. Some I know I got wrong. But this one, I think I lean towards Aspinall, and that man just... I don't know what to say. Like, this was his most difficult test on paper ever. Alexander Volkov represents a level of competition he had not faced. His, I mean, his other fights in the UFC, he debuted against... I'll just read them off in order. Jake Collier, Alan Badeau, Andrei Arlovsky, Sergei Spivak, and Volkov. Volkov's better than everyone else he fought, by a wide margin. Uh, this was his first five-round scheduled fight. Now, obviously, it did not go anywhere. It didn't get out of the first. This guy just... I don't know that he's going to be the heavyweight champion. But you're going to have to be a top top of the food chain heavyweight to beat this guy. I mean, he just took out Volkov was I think 6 coming into this, something like that, top 10 for for sure. And in this is the worst loss of Volkov's career. I don't know, maybe the Minikov one. The 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 first fight with the fight with Minikov was a bit more it still ended early but it was a bit more competitive before this. Aspinall hit him, hit him pretty clean. Uh, Volkov had a couple of decent body kicks. Um, Volkov's lead leg is very dexterous. But Aspinall timed, uh, ducked under a punch, got a takedown, moved to side control, and, and got the straight arm bar. So uh, you can look up the specifics of that if you want to know the details. Um, it's not the, uh, it's not a Kimura, it's not an Americana, but it's from that same kind of hand position, so you get the double wrist lock, but instead of cranking behind, you straighten it out and adjust the arm so that uh, the elbow is on top of your of your forearm, and then you leverage it up, so you hyperextend the elbow. Uh, I don't know about some of you guys, if you waited longer than this to get on the Tom Aspinall bandwagon, so to speak. I mean, I, I don't claim fandoms of fighters all that much these days for a variety of reasons, but if you're still skeptical about this guy uh might be time to cash out on that like might be time to get on the get on the right side of of acknowledging his ability if nothing else i don't know how he'll face how he'll do against a very dedicated wrestler if he were to fight curtis blades hypothetically um that's still a bit of a question mark but He's got fast hands. He's got good power. He's good about finding in-between offense. He's good at different ranges. He's not much of a kicker, but he fought a guy much... I shouldn't say much taller, but Volkov was taller and longer. And Aspinall didn't have too much trouble kind of closing in past the kicking distance. Now, some of that is Volkov is specific to uh, how Volkov fights. Volkov, for a tall man, is very good in the pocket. So how he'd deal with someone better about managing distance, you know, Cyril Gaon, for example, I don't know either. But he seems to have a really good handle on how to close distance. So that's a, 
That's a pretty big deal. It's a fast hands, good about finding in between offense, good about using all his weapons. Pretty good takedowns. Um, Volkov's not the most difficult guy in the world to take down, but he's not the easiest either. So him getting Volkov down and then very quickly moving through to submit him, that says a lot. I mean, Fabrizio Verdum had Volkov down at one point in their fight, I seem to recall, and, you know, couldn't do a whole lot with... I mean, won the round, but he couldn't submit him. Um... Who else had him down? I mean, he was on his back for a prolonged period of time in the Curtis Blades fight, and Blades might be a deficiency in Blades more than anything else, but Blades never got close to a finish there. I mean, this was his first submission loss since... like 2010. Yeah, he got choked up by Maxime Grishin in 2010. So for like 12 years almost. Nobody could tap this guy out. And he fought some people who know what they're doing on the ground. Uh, and, yeah, Aspinall's the first guy to do it in a while. Uh, Aspinall called out Ty Tuivasa after the fight. Given the Tuivasa just, you know, knocked out Derek Lewis. Would be a really good fight. I would certainly be down. You've got two guys. The heavyweight title is in a bit of an odd state at the moment. And... Um, some of that's because, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about this later. I'm just talk about it now. It makes more sense to talk about it now. So earlier this week, Francis Ngannou had knee surgery. Uh, they had to, I think, reconstruct his ACL and they repaired his MCL. I might have those backwards about, but one of them was, like, straight up replaced. One of them was repaired. Uh, so he's gonna be out probably the rest of the year would be my guess. I could be wrong about that, but he, Francis, the situation between Francis and the UFC to begin with is uh, still a giant pile of... It's a dumpster fire. It is a dumpster fire and for a variety of reasons. Um, some of which were easily avoidable, some of which were not. Some of which are on the fault of the UFC... Most, I think, if, from my perspective, not all, but most, are on the fault of the UFC. And, again, I'm not saying Francis is some angel in all of this. He's a professional fighter who is engaged in, who knows, he knows what business he's in. And he wish, and I've talked a little bit before about the somewhat complicated relationship that Francis and the UFC have at the moment. So, we don't know about that. We don't know if John Jones is potentially coming in to fight for an interim title. We don't know what Stipe Miocic is doing. Does he have the next fight, actually? He might have announced that. He was in the news recently. Let's see if he's got a... Uh, does... Not seem like he's got a current fight lined up. So he's a again, he's a bit of an X factor. Uh, gone just lost, but obviously still very much one of the best heavyweights in the world. Taito Ivasa just upset things by beating Blades. Volkov losing here will 
launched Tom Aspinall higher. Um, Shamil Abdurakhimov lost on this same card. Uh, I'll get to that fight more in, in a minute, but I'm kind of looking through the top ten here. You've got Dawkins and Blades next week. So the top of heavyweight is in a bit of flux. And it's also very murky because Nganu still seems... Look, last I heard, he's still planning on sitting out his contract. He beat Gon. I didn't score that fight for him, but officially he won. He now... He would have to wait until, again, like the first of next year or what, right around that same time. So he... He's got to sit out for a bit, but if he had that kind of serious knee surgery, well, that's that's gonna that will eat up a giant chunk of that time. You know, people are out for a long time with this kind of knee injury, you know, whether they're having disputes with the UFC or not. So there's a lot of murkiness here, but like I said, Aspinall and Tuivasa, I would absolutely be down for. Um, Derek Lewis is still ranked number five. You could do him and Derek Lewis. Um, some of this depends on... Now, the rankings right now have not been updated to reflect what happened last night. Uh, so, at the moment, they, they've still got Aspinall at 11. He's going to jump up. He just beat number 6. So he's going to jump. Uh, where exactly remains to be seen. I might actually put him above Lewis. But I have a different... I have an entirely different methodology for ranking than the UFC likes to promote. The UFC likes to rank fighters, and I think this is... Um, because The UFC doesn't rank the fighters. The UFC has a bunch of people who they solicit for rankings. And their... I believe their criteria is more along the lines of, well, one, the UFC suggests things, and most of them go along with it. Oh, pardon me. And the other is, well, who's the next be who's the best? You have the champion, and the champion is unranked. And this is, to me, kind of, and I'm going to borrow this argument from other people, this is kind of the giveaway. If the champion is not ranked, then the purpose of your rankings is not to determine who the best fighter is, but who should who is the most deserving contender. Serial Gone, currently sitting at number one, might be, and I wouldn't argue this too much, the second best heavyweight in the UFC. I thought he beat Nganu. I mean, again, I scored that fight for him. If they had a rematch, I think he could tweak a few things and could maybe win that fight. I mean, if they fought again, and I don't know if they will or not, that's still a very winnable fight for Gon. Uh, he's that good. Is he the next contender, or should he be the next contender? The answer is no, not for the title. If you rank the champion, like if you allow the champion to be ranked, then you at that point you open the door for... Who is the best fighter in the division? And sometimes that's not the champion. And that's when things get awkward, especially if you're the UFC. Now, boxing doesn't really have this problem. Um, mostly because there's a bunch of different titles, so who is the champion? But like, by way of example, uh, George Cambosos defeated uh, Teofimo Lopez uh, not that long ago. Big upset. Uh and became the more or less undisputed uh, lightweight champion for boxing, 135 pounds. Now, the question that you might reasonably then ask, well, does that mean that George Cambosos is the best lightweight in the world? And I don't think too many people would say he is. And that's not me sliding the guy. He fought his butt off against uh, Lopez, and he won that fight fairly. 
But the question is not who is the champion, the question is who is the best. And you'd like those two things to be the same, but they're not always. Yeah. So if you but if you don't rank the champion, then your rankings are to determine who should be the next contender, not who is the next best fighter. And they kind of just, I think the UFC's ranking ideology is, well, the champion's the best, and then we rank everyone else about who we think is, like, who are the best 15 fighters under the champion. And I, I don't think that's a helpful way of ranking contenders, when what you should be doing is establishing your contendership queue, not a pointless exercise in rankings. I mean, the UFC didn't do rankings for a long time, I think, because they realized how silly that was. Uh, then Fox wanted them to do it, and ESPN just wanted them to continue the tradition, I think, because they like having those. And I'm not saying it's an unhelpful thing to have, but it's not... It's just not how I would do it, personally. But the long and the short of that is, I don't know where Aspinall's going to end up. He's going to end up near the top five. And with the kind of murkiness around the title, um, I don't know exactly, but... Nobody's really even given that guy problems. I mean, think about that for a second. He's fought some really good fighters. He's fought, and it's heavyweight. And sure, he's fought a couple of guys who, you know, not the best in the world. I mean, I don't... Certainly not trying to disparage some of the people he's fought because they could absolutely beat the crap out of me. But Jake Collier... And Alan Badeau are not exactly the best heavyweights that even the UFC has to offer, much less the world. Andrei Arlovsky is... God. I don't know what happened with Arlovsky. He's so far past his sell-by date by any appreciable metric. Yet he's developed a skill set that allows him to kind of just point and laugh at a bunch of fighters, and they don't know what to do about it. And then he wins decisions. And Aspinall, I mean, Aspinall didn't fall for it. He blitzed, he tapped him in the second round. It wasn't a terribly close fight. Spivak, eh, okay. You can argue where Spivak is relative to Arlovsky, kind of in the ranking system. That wasn't, Spivak didn't give him too many problems. Volkov here did not give him too many problems, and Volkov is a durable, proven top-level heavyweight. He's just running over everybody. I mean, half of his losses, he has two. The most recent one was him being disqualified for landing an illegal downward elbow. Now, that's a li- that's a loss, and I don't mean to pretend otherwise. You can lose fights by not knowing the rules or not following them. Perfectly legitimate way to lose a fight. Okay? This is not me saying it, do- it shouldn't count. It should, if that was the right call. I'm gonna- I'll assume it was for the sake of argument. But half of his total losses are things he did to himself. And his first loss ever was a heel hook submission. And since then, it's not even been close. He's not been out of the second round ever. The longest fight on this man's professional record is his the loss via DQ elbow. Um, it's in 2016, and it went 3:33 into the second, so not even nine minutes. Nobody's lasted nine minutes in the cage with this guy. Now, somebody's going to at some point. It is something of an inevitability. But that guy's a problem. He is absolutely the real deal at heavyweight. Absolutely. 
the real deal. As for Volkov, I mean, this probably ends any... That pretty much ends his title aspirations if he still had any. He's still a tough fight, and I think he can... uh, And I think he can still be a valuable member of the roster if he wants to just keep collecting checks, but... You know, Volkov is... He's not young, man. He's... He's 33. Okay, I take that back. He's... God. He is younger than I am. I'm so useless. But he's got 44 fights. Which needs to be acknowledged as well. So... I don't know... I don't know exactly how much longer he's going to be around. He might be young physically, but... 44 fights is a lot. And he spent a lot of that time fighting top-tier guys. Not every fight ever, but... He did not have a terribly easy... He did not have a terribly easy come-up path, either. So... I don't know. He's probably still, you know, good for another couple of years, but I don't know that he's... I, I just don't know. I, I'm, I said, I'm not calling for the guys to retire by any stretch of the imagination, but this is me going, this is probably the end of any title aspirations he might have had. It could be wrong, but that's my hunch. So that was your main event. Good stuff from Tom Aspinall. Co-main event. Wow, this fight. Arnold Allen, man. I said it last week when I previewed this. I picked Hooker. Uh, but Arnold Allen's good, and people forget because he fights once a year. He's, and that's not a joke, like, he's, uh, he's been with the UFC for a surprisingly long period of time. I mean, he debuted for the UFC in, uh, 2015. He's got a, what, an eight-fight winning streak? Sorry, in the UFC only is what I reference. He's 18-1 and one overall, so his overall winning streak is longer, but his UFC win- winning streak is, I believe, eight in a row? Nine, sorry. Nine in a row. He surpa- Yeah, because he surpassed uh, Volkanovski for longest active winning streak at featherweight. Um, Volkanovski's would have been nine, but his UFC... De- he had a catchweight in there, too, I think. Like, his debut came at lightweight, and then he's like, no, I, I fight at featherweight, and then, you know, started wrecking people's faces because Volkanovski's awesome. But this guy's won nine fights in a row, but he's fought once a year. He fought once in 15, once in 16, once in 17, once in 18, once in 19, once in... He fought twice in 19, I take that back. He fought in March, then he fought in July of 19. So, one year since since he joined the UFC, he has fought twice. Yeah, then once in 20, once in 2021, once this far in 2022. He is a really good fighter. He... He capitalized on some of Hooker's, uh, just some of how Hooker fights. I mean, to Hooker's, for better or for worse, there's things Hooker does. And he capitalized on being the faster man, uh, was able to land punches into the open stance. Uh, one of them was, I forget who was Southpaw. They were open stance, I forget who, I forget who was who. But he was landing good counter punches. He rocked Hooker a couple of times. And Hooker, man, he swung back. Like, he actually wobbled Allen at one point. Uh, after being hurt, they got into a firefight. And he got Allen to back off by hurting him. 
But Hooker just never really didn't seem to have the reflexes, didn't quite seem to have the speed. He's Hooker's never been the fastest fighter, he's a, but he's a very analytical one. He's good about making reads, he's good about countering, but he never uh, he just never kind of got to uh, never kind of got a read on Allen. And Allen hurt him again, countered a jab with a beautiful one-two, uh, backed him into the fence and just unloaded. Hooker never fell over. The man is unbelievably tough. But he stopped really trying to fight back, so the ref stopped it. Uh, biggest win of Allen's career. Uh, after the fight, he... Oh, who'd he call out? Um, it was a fight. I kind of liked it. Hang on, let me see if I can find it. Because I thought it was a fight that made sense, and I was... Because uh, he's got a win over Sadiq Yusuf. He's got... He's got some quality wins. People just forget about him. Uh, Cater, that was it. I misspelled that in my report. I will fix that after I'm done recording. <laughs> uh, shame on me. Yeah, he said he'd love to like to fight Calvin Cater. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, Cater's still ranked at featherweight. Yeah, he's number five. Allen was seven coming into this. He might surplant. He might move up over Josh Emmett, who's currently six. Um. But yeah, he needs to. He absolutely needs to be fighting top five. Uh, I mean, I think Rod. Didn't they hear that Rodriguez had a fight? Holloway's currently serving his backup for the zombie and Volkanovski. Ortega's still a bit out of the picture at the moment. And then Cater at five. Yeah, we'll check Yair Rodriguez because I think I saw something about him. I saw something about him recently. Um, no? I know he had the loss to Holloway, but I thought... I thought I'd heard it mentioned that he was... Um, uh, that he had his next one set. Let's see if I'm wrong about that. Yeah, no, not yet. Uh, okay. Why was I... I might just be off my game a little bit as far as the, my, my memory goes at the moment. But if Cater is uh, not available, or whatever, um, Rodriguez and Allen would be... That would be a heck of a fight. Uh, yeah, he needs to be fighting the top. And please, Mr. Allen, fight more often... You know, this one thing, this once a year thing is, uh, that's not doing you any favors. And you are more than talented enough uh, to to warrant a much bigger, uh, again, that kind of a fight. Uh, he, he's good everywhere. Fast hands, pretty big for the division. Uh, he's just... 
a really good fighter, and I'm glad to see. I'm, I was happy to see him get a win here. Uh, I'm. Yeah, if you can keep him active, get him into the top five. That's who he should. That's who he should be fighting next. He should not be fighting down anymore. Not that Dan Hooker was him fighting down, because Dan Hooker is a very. He's a very decorated fighter, but. He should not be fighting anyone ranked below him anymore. Uh, that that time has passed. Uh, tough loss for Hooker, man. Real tough loss for Hooker. Uh, I know I saw some people erroneously claiming this is a camp issue. I don't think this is a camp issue for Hooker. Um, I think the bill might be coming due for him. Um, I mean, Hooker's had 33 fights. He's 32, so he's not he's not old physically uh, in terms of age, but that guy has had some he's had some wars. He spent a lot of time uh, at featherweight, which was when he was struggling to make it. If you look at what he did when he got uh, once he moved up to lightweight. He had a pretty good run, uh, but that Mark Jacquesi fight was not easy. He won it in the third, and I think I think I had him winning it anyway, but not easy. That fight with Barboza in 2018, man, that was brutal. Um, the Ally Quinta fight was pretty sick, was not, but in successive fights, here here to me is the big. You look at the Barboza fight and you go, that could change a guy. Then he rebounds okay, but if you look at these three fights in succession, I'm going to list off these three. He fights Paul Felder in 2020, wins a split decision, that was a war. He then fights Dustin Poirier in 2020 in another brutal war. And I think he loses that via unanimous decision. Then he gets stopped by Chandler in two and a half minutes. I think that... I think that Felder and Poirier fights, like, right away, I think that may have uh, that may have done something to him. Now, he's still game. He made 145. He fought at... I'm not going to close the door on the guy. You know, he returned to featherweight... And fought an absolute stud. And it didn't go his way. But I... I don't know if Featherweight's where he should be. I don't know if he moves... He obviously left light... I think he left lightweight. Because his title aspirations were never going to be realized there. After some of the, those setbacks. But I do wonder a little bit whether or not the bill for some of those wars this guy's been involved in hasn't come due. I hope not. I like watching the guy fight, but that is a bit of reality that needs to be acknowledged. All right, next up, uh, Patty Pimblett defeated Kazula Vargas via rear naked choke, 350 of the first round. I debated how I wanted to talk about this for a little bit. So I'm, I could be disparaging. Um, here's the only thing about this, and I'm going to talk about this with Molly McCann too, but McCann had a, there was a bit of context to McCann's that made me a little bit more uh, understanding.
winning it in your home country, you know, close to your hometown, I, I, maybe I'm just too dead inside. I don't care. And this guy celebrated like he had done something amazing. Buddy, you beat a guy with a losing record in the UFC who was brought in specifically to make you look good. You know, you, you did not do something spectacular. You barely did the expected. Uh, and people who... I think people who overly glorify and celebrate things like this get under my skin a little bit. And this is not about, this is not just about him. This is about, again, anybody that does this. It just, it doesn't sit well right with me most of the time. I don't know why. Um, that's part of my makeup I haven't really addressed. Uh, it might not be healthy, to be perfectly honest. Maybe I should be more understanding of celebrating things, but I'm not. So... You hear, just no. This this um that that didn't seem to mesh well with me. Um, he got into a dust up with Ilya Taporia during fight week because Pemblet. Um, I I'm gonna try to remember the tweet because he tweeted it. He deleted it later, but he said you know there's something about the stupid Georgian people and this is why the Russians terrorize you. Now. I don't have the deepest understanding of the geopolitical structure of that part of the world, but even I know that that's profoundly insensitive at a bare minimum. And I know it's the fight game and who the heck am I to say, well, you know, sensitivity. This is when I say it's insensitive, like there's insensitive in the sense that you have insulted someone. And then there's, oh, by the way, this geopolitical power, you know, terrorizing you, trying to subjugate you, trying to destroy your cultural identity and your and take over your country. And there's there's degrees to which I think sensitivity is appropriate. You know, I mean, if you were fighting a Ukrainian, would you have said the same thing, right? Or next year, I don't know what exactly is going to happen between Russia and Ukraine, but hypothetically, you know... If he's fighting some Ukrainian, he wants to get under his skin. Well, boy, sure no mystery why the Russians squashed you guys. Not that I'm saying the Russians are going to, but again, delving into a hypothetical. Like, that's kind of what we're doing here. And I don't... I'm not one of those people who gets up in arms over what is said promoting a fight 99% of the time. I don't care. I accept what this is. I've heard vile, vile things said by fighters to each other in the name of promoting a fight. This is not the vilest, but I think whenever you choose to reference things like this, you are deliberately attacking not just the fighter, but a lot more than that. And you are insulting, you're insulting the dead and you're insulting the innocent dead. And that's one of those things that does not sit well with me personally. And Ilya Taporia, who's on the same card and is from Georgia, took exception to this, as one might expect, and they got into a little bit of a dust-up. Uh, Taporia said, I'll talk about Taporia in detail in a minute or two, but Taporia's angling for that fight. Pimblet doesn't want any part of that. Um... I, I would guarantee he doesn't want any part of that. He called out a welterweight after the fight. 
I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, as for the fight itself, you know, they came out. Vargas landed a couple of good punches, got a takedown, couldn't do much. Uh, Pimblet wall walked, hit a judo toss. When Vargas tried to wall walk, he gave an opening for Pimblet to get his back. Pimblet got his back, choked him out. It was a solid enough performance out of Pimblet. And I'm not going to. Bear in mind, everything I'm about to say is not meant to insinuate that Paddy Pimblet cannot fight. He is like 18 and 3. You don't amass that kind of record without an ability to fight. Because if all, even if all you do is fight the worst of the worst, somebody's going to get lucky if you really suck. So the man can fight. And what I'm about to say is not is not meant to imply that he is a bum. He's not a bum. But because of his um, his connection with the audience, the UFC is booking him favorably. His UFC debut was against a kindly put journeyman in the promotion, and even then he almost got knocked out. So here they give him a guy who was like one and two. And he was brought in to make Pimblet look good. That's what he was here for. Now, you still have to win those fights, and to Pimblet's credit, he did, but this is lightweight. Do you know how many hammer, how many unranked hammers there are at lightweight they could have thrown at this guy? There are so, so many. That, I mean, tell you what, I'll go back up a couple of fights, and I will find, find someone at lightweight. Yeah, okay. Last week. Drew Dober versus Terrence McKinney. Either of those guys. Absolute hammers. Absolute hammers. We go back to UFC 272. Uh, Ludovic Klein and Devontae Smith. Uh, Jalen Turner and Jamie Malarkey. Neither of these guys are ranked. Um, I mean, we got Bobby Green at lightweight, who is unranked. And I, mean, I made my thing about that when I talked about his fight with Makashev, but... You got Bobby Green out there, Armin Saryuki, and I think he's ranked now, but Joel Alvarez, the guy Saryuki and beat. Joel Alvarez is... That dude will mess you up. Like, there's a bunch of guys in this division that they could reasonably throw at Paddy Pimblett. And they are choosing to give him favorable matchups. Now, I'm not even necessarily saying this is the worst thing in the world. Pimblet's young. He's very much still developing, despite he's fought a lot for a guy his age. But there's a there is a quality concern there. And look, his hype train is going to hit a pretty serious speed bump sooner rather than later. Because he's good. As I said. But he's also got deficiencies that not as good fighters have already kind of exploited. And again, I'm not saying Luigi Vendramini is a total scrub. He is not. I'm not saying Kazula Vargas is a total scrub. He is not. But Vargas is not what I would consider a UFC caliber fighter to the degree that that even means anything anymore. He's one in three in the promotion. That's it. His only win is over Rong Zhu. I mean, okay, he had the weirdness against Brock Weaver, but he was kind of su- he's kind of suffering through that fight anyway. Like, he's not a guy who 
has a tremendous amount of value, who has demonstrated a tremendous amount of ability. And I, know, I saw some people tweeting like, you know, yeah, we need to put Pimblet in Liverpool, which is not the worst idea in the world, and do him versus Teporia there, and I just, I immediately went, they're not going to do that. They're not. Look, Ilya Teporia would do bad things to him. I, I feel very confident saying that. And they're just not going to do that. Now, one of the other things Pimblet came out and said is, you know, I'm not he doesn't really want to fight ranked oppositions until he's making more money. And I don't bl- I said this about Sean O'Malley. You know, Sean O'Malley's point was my paycheck is the same whether or not I fight the number one contender or a guy you just signed off the contender series. Why would I put myself through the aggravation of fighting, you know, someone really tough when it's not affecting the bottom line? I think that's a fair point, and I do not begrudge any fighter for taking that stance, especially if you're a developing fighter and especially if you're, you know, in that kind of position. I, I do think it, you know, and look, O'Malley's not that close to a title shot, so it's not a big deal. Uh, Pimblet's not even close to a title shot, so it's not a big deal if he wants to fight out his first contract fighting pe- fighting the Vendraminis and the Varguses of the world. He'll make more money for his next contract, absolutely, and then might feel it's now worth his time to make a legitimate run at legitimate opposition, and that's just a calculation each individual fighter has to make, and I am not here to second-guess that as a general rule. But they are going to continue treating him with... So- he's going to get keep getting a softer touch. It, it only annoys me in comparison to a fighter I'm going to talk about in a few minutes, someone like Jai Herbert, who lost on this card. He fought Ilya Teporia. Jai Herbert is a very good fighter who in the UFC has faced as follows. Francisco Trinaldo, Renato Moicano, Kama Worthy, and Ilya Teporia. That guy has fought nothing but hammers. And he gave Trinaldo problems in that fight. He was up before Trinaldo stopped him in the third. And he lost to Moicano because Renato Moicano was very good. And he lost to Teporia. But like, if we had done the same thing with Paddy Pimblett, if his UFC debut is against Francisco Trinaldo, uh, I'm fairly confident about how that goes. And it's not the way of Paddy Pimblett. If he has to, even if he just fought Hanato Moicano, like tomorrow, like if that's his next fight, yeah, you're going to fight Hanato Moicano. Who do you think wins that fight? That's not a close fight. That's not a close fight. So, you know, again, Herbert fights nothing but top tier guys, and Pimblet fights, you know, the enhancement talent, which is a deeply, like, that's almost. I don't mean that to be dismissive, as I said, of Vendramini and Vargas, who are tougher than a giant portion of the human race. Either one of those guys could beat me, probably one-handed. So, but I have to call it relative, not to me, but to the UFC standard of uh, of talent. And Vendramini's not even, again, Vendramini's not 
a scrub. He's got wins. So, but he's, again, you can tell when they do this. And it's made more obvious because the UFC does it so infrequently. They so rarely do this kind of thing that when they do it, it's obvious and a little bit galling, to be candid. Um, so I don't know who, after the fight, Pimlet like, I want to fight Max Griffin. He's a welterweight. You want to move up? Fine, move up. <laughs> yeah, you, you're a bully. You're the most negative guy. You're always in my Instagram account. Or just, oh. Like, if you want to insult the guy, insult the guy. If you want to call someone out, try to keep it to either your division or the division you plan to move to. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. Ugh. Uh, the theatricality surrounding this really annoyed me. But the win itself was solid. Pimblet's grappling is still really good. He did a great job of mitigating damage from bottom. Uh, and obviously his, his back take was really nice. He did a good job of constantly adjusting his choke when he was uh, applying it to make sure it stayed there, stayed tight, and got tighter. That's something of an art form unto itself. You know, there, there's the old joke about how you know there are black belts who will let you get the rear naked choke position, and then will fight out of it before you can put them to sleep. Part of that, especially if they're doing this on like, hey, random person on the street, choke me out. There's a lot of nuance that goes into making that choke really work. And most people don't know it. And most people, if you, you know, tell them to apply a sleeper hold, which is kind of what that is, but hey, put a, put on a sleeper hold. They, they don't really go about it right. They kind of cup the hand over the top of the head. They don't put their head in the right position, and they try to squeeze their arms to get, like, they try to bicep curl to compress the neck. Which is, most of that is wrong. If you want to really choke somebody out, you don't put your hand on the back of their head and push down. Alright, that's actually losing leverage. You you fold, fold it all the way over to the other side of the neck, and then you scissor, and then you, instead of pressing down with your wrist, you scissor outward with your triceps. You put your head down to help seal things off and you don't compress with your arm you don't bicep curl or squeeze you take the choking arm shoulder and you roll it back because that compresses the that compresses the space more effectively than trying to squeeze with your bicep so again these are things that people just if you've never had to do this or never had it explained to you are not necessarily the most intuitive things and Pimblet constantly adjusting and fighting to make sure the choke worked was nice. There are people, even professionals, who sometimes struggle with that. They get the choke where they usually get it, and the other guy's doing a couple of things right defensively, and they don't know how to finish it. They don't know, the again, some of the finer details, or they're not really uh, refined. So Pimblet's grappling is very good. His striking's still a bit of an issue, but it's, you know, it's gonna it's going to be what it is until he either improves or somebody knocks him out. And one of those two things is going to happen. Let's see. Gunnar Nelson defeated Takashi Sato via unanimous decision. 30-26 across the boards. No issues with the 10-8 uh, and the third for Nelson. I didn't go that way, partially because the UFC broadcast did not uh, inform us what rules they were operating under for this event. I find this deeply annoying because I just would like to know. I would assume the fighters knew, because there's a few bits of nuance in the rules that are irrelevant, 
for me, at a bare minimum, when I provide my own official scorecard, I try to score using the criteria that is because there's a, there's a difference in the scoring criteria between the old unified rules and the newer unified rules. And that difference in scoring criteria, I, I try to reflect it. Under the new scoring criteria, yeah, that's a 10-8 third round, easily. Under the old, you can make the argument. But I don't have, a, I don't have an issue either way with the 10-8 there, as I said. But the broadcast, come on, guys. You had time. You could have made it clear what rule set was this, these were being contested under. Just saying. Uh, not a lot happened in this fight. It tended to go as follows. Sato would kind of back Gunner up. Gunner would try a blitz, wouldn't really connect. Sato would back him up again. Gunner would blitz again. Sato would back him up again. Gunner would get a takedown, get the back, and then just hold the back, etc. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to add to this. You know, Gunnar Nelson is looked to be about as good as when he, as, as his last fight. Um, he lost his last fight, but he's been out for almost three years, uh, two and a half, give or take, with some rib injuries and whatnot. So good to see him back. Uh, not a terribly uh, exciting affair. Your knockout of the night was not awarded as such, but I'll get to the bonuses in a minute. But your knockout of the year contender comes in the women's flyweight fight between Molly McCann and Luana Carolina via spinning back elbow 152 of the third round. Um, this was not a terribly great fight, for if, if you're me. Uh, McCann came out and started swinging early. She got Carolina backing up more than once, got her hurt a couple of times, um, then gassed out a little bit, actually gave Carolina the second. I thought Carolina started slowing the pace, working knees and elbows a little bit better in brief clinches. And McCann just wasn't as successful with her offense in the second. In the third, McCann kind of got a second win, got back to it, and just exiting a clinch. She telegraphed this attack, by the way. And you can find, if you haven't seen the clip, look it up. It's, it's, gonna, it's one of those that should be just about everywhere because it was so good. Uh, but she loads up her hips, like, she keeps looking over her left shoulder as her hips mi move, as her right hip kind of starts loading. And, guys, if you're ever in a clinch situation with someone like this, you've got to be aware of what they're doing. Because when they start loading, that spin is coming. And if you're not aware of it, you'll get clobbered. And she threw this beautiful little spinning back elbow and just absolutely obliterated Luana Carolina with it. Now, this is another fight that was kind of a setup. Again, I don't mean to imply that the results were fixed. That's not what I mean, but this was a fairly obvious hey, let's showcase Molly, well, let's give Molly a, a favorable op a favorable matchup. I mean, Carolina had a better UFC record than that might indicate. She was 3-1. and one. She lost... Here's the thing about that. One of her wins was over Priscilla Cachuea, who should not be in the UFC. She had a split decision over Poliana Botelho that was iffy. And the other one was a win over Lupita uh, Godinez, who took the fight on, like, a couple of days' notice up a weight class. She had this huge height and reach advantage. And even then dropped the first round pretty badly. 
so again, this was careful matchmaking to give. And look, I McCann's celebration annoyed me only in one way. Like you score that beautiful a knockout, and you get hey, you do you. When she climbed out of the cage and like got a cheap fake belt from the crowd and then came back into the ring with it, I just. Then the UFC Europe Twitter account was like, tell you know, tell us she's not the champ. Guys, she fights at flyweight. I don't need to tell you she's not the champ. You know who the champion at flyweight is. Uh, it, yeah, again, the I'm a, I'm more forgiving of this one because you scored such a spectacular finish that a degree of celebration, even if it is on the excessive, is a bit more warranted. The parading around with the fake belt was a little bit... Yeah. Little bit. Just, no. No. I mean, any... Pretty much any ranked fighter in that division would do bad things to Molly McCann. I mean, who are her losses in the UFC? All right. Yeah, you got choked out by Jillian Robertson. You lost to Tyler Santos. You lost to Laura Procopio. This was your first finish. This was the first. Yeah, this was your first finish since 2018. Your first finish in the UFC. Yeah, again, anyone who's uh, a good fighter in that division is gonna do bad things to her. But this was. I mean. This is one of your knockouts of the year. Like, I don't know where this is going to feature exactly when the year winds winds down, but this is going on the list. This was a beautiful knockout. This was a beautiful knockout. Uh, I don't think she called anyone out next or whatnot, so I don't know. Again, it's un, this is unranked fighters in one of the worst, one of the one of the least developed. Because again, worst is is might seem like I'm just completely down on the whole thing, but one of the least deep divisions in the UFC. Uh, and kicking off the main card, Ilya Tapori and knocked out Chai Herbert in the second round. This fight, man. Uh, Taporia normally fights at featherweight. I don't know if he's going back there or if he's going to make the move to lightweight a bit more permanent. Herbert was a fair bit taller and longer, and it showed. Uh, he cracked Taporia with a head kick in the first round, dropped him. Uh, and I thought we were on our way to an upset. Like, he got hurt that badly, but they clinched up. He survived. They, We got some firefight exchanges between these two. Then you know, Taporia drops the first round clearly, but comes back out for the second. In fairly short order, he backs Herbert into the fence. Misses a right hand, digs a left to the body, and then just ends him with a right hand. Um, Herbert was throwing back, actually landed a pretty good left hook, uh, believe it or not, in that same exchange. But being the taller, lankier guy hooking with the shorter man in close means it's harder for your defense to come back. Uh, And he threw that hook, and Taporia was coming with his own right anyway, but it the lack of defensive positioning from Herbert gave him a clear line to the uh, lane to the jaw and Herbert couldn't quite get that arm back into position after throwing that punch and didn't get down behind his shoulder. This will happen. And he just 
he got flatlined. Um, Ilya Tapori is the real deal, people. Um, he's undefeated. He's uh, got th on th a three. Not just a, he's uh, finished his last three opponents. Knocked out Damon Jackson, which is not easy to do. He knocked out Ryan Hall. He knocked out Jai Herbert here up at lightweight. Whether he stays there or not, I don't know. He's fought. He's fought around a little bit. He, most of his career has been featherweight. He had one fight at bantamweight. Um, so I don't know if he's going to stay at lightweight or not, but he is a very talented fighter with a ton of grit and determination. Um, this guy's the real deal. So... Again, not saying future champion or title contender. There's a lot of time still for things to go right or wrong. But his success is not accidental. And that guy is going to be a problem wherever he fights. That was your main card. As for the prelims, Makwan Amir Khani defeated Mike Grundy via technical submission and a conda choke. 57 seconds of the first round. Grundy with a really nice kind of double shift in terms of throwing punches into the double leg. But he's not quite head all the way outside, and he's not quite head in the middle on it. And unfortunately, that kind of leaves enough space for Amir Khani to wrap up a bit of a guillotine threat. Then he very quickly switches it to threatening the anaconda. There's some positioning against the fence that prevents Grundy from really being able to pass in the safest of ways. Moreover, trying to pass when in the Anaconda choke, it's not that that doesn't work, but it's not the same. If someone's got you in a guillotine and you get onto the side opposite where the head is, it's not that you can't be choked from there, but it's hard. It's very, very difficult. If someone's got you in an, ana in an Anaconda choke and you try to pass... Depending on which way you pass, you might actually tighten it up. Again, the fence was kind of complicating things. Um, and Amir Khani just was able to cinch it down, hook the legs uh, to really compress everything, put him to sleep. Uh, Amir Khani needed that win pretty badly. Sergei Pavlovich defeated Shamil Abdurahimov via TKO 403 of the first. Um, nice little, like, right extended uppercut. Um... It's more of a... There's too many names for some of these things in boxing and whatnot, so I get some of them confused. Um, but long distance, threw a nice uppercut, uh, dropped Abdurahimov, got on top, and I got to the ride position and just pounded him out from there. Um, Pavlovich is pretty good. I mean, he had a rough UFC debut. It's his only loss to this to date. Um, his UFC debut, he fought Alistair Overeem. And got stopped in the first round. But he's rebounded and stopped everyone since. I mean, Marcelo Goleman, Maurice Green, okay, that's not exactly you know, top tier. But Shamil Abdurahimov was... He was number 10, I want to say. Uh, uh, yeah, he was. He was number 10. And on a two-fight losing streak, so that might have still been a touch generous as far as the rankings go, but Abdurahimov has proven he can win at the UFC level consistently, and Pavlovich, uh, Pavlovich knocked him out, so you know, good on, 
Good for him. You know, Pavlovich seems to be finding his footing a little bit. Uh, light heavyweight, Paul Craig. Catching a triangle choke against Nikita Krylov, 357 of the first. Um, Krylov was beating the crap out of Paul Craig. I mean, got the better of him on the feet, took him down, was just bombing on him from guard. But he got a little bit lax, got, uh, wasn't quite mindful of where his wrist was being controlled, and Craig just, like lightning, grabs a triangle choke, pulls down on the head, uh, gets the tap. Yeah, Paul Craig's fighting style is n is never going to be consistent enough to get him to the title. He's go because there are just too many holes. There's too much decision making going on there that does not work. Uh, iteration over iteration over iteration. By the same token, his fighting style is going to mean he's going to win fights he should not. Where if he fought in a more conventional fashion, he would lose. Uh, after the fight, he said he'd love to fight in Glasgow in June and would like to fight Anthony Smith. I am down for all of that. Smith was a reasonable call-out. Craig's on a good winning streak. Uh, yeah, I mean, he hasn't lost since he fought Alonzo Menafield in 19. He stays pretty active. Um, yeah, four-fight winning streak, six-fight unbeaten streak. There's a draw with Shogun in there somewhere. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, that He's got some wins that have aged very well. I mean, he beat Magomed Ankalaev in Ankalaev's UFC debut. Uh, he he beat Jamal Hill, who just had a really big win. He uh, you know, This one over Nikita Krylov is certainly nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, let's let's throw him in there with uh, Smith's ranked number five at the moment. Craig was 11 coming into this. He was fighting number nine, so he's going to bump up a few places. Yeah, Smith's a reasonable call out, all things considered. Uh, I would favor Smith in that fight, but you know, I favor a lot of people to beat Craig and. He's beaten a lot of them, again, kind of because of how he fights. See, Jack Shore defeated Timur Valley of a unanimous decision, 229 128s, 129-27. Uh, a 10-8 for Shore, I believe, in what would have been the third round. Under the old scoring criteria, was not called for. New one, you could maybe make the argument. Uh, this is a fun little fight. Shore... I had it 1-1 going into... I mean, had it 1-1 going into the third. I think it was Shore 1, Valley of 2. I forget exactly how I scored that, so forgive me, but... They were both competitive rounds. Uh, both men were able to secure takedowns. Neither man able to do too much with it. Um, both men had some good offensive tools on the feet. The leg kicks these two guys were landing on each other were pretty nasty. Third round comes along, and Jack Shore is able to drop uh, Valiev a couple of different times. Valiev guts through it, though, man. A credit to him. He got dropped, and he got hurt, and he got up and kept fighting. Uh, good win for Shore. Jack Shore is a very... Uh, is he undefeated? Yeah, he's 16-0. and 0. 
He debuted for the UFC in 2019 and has five wins now. Yeah, he's going to be fighting ranked opposition soon. It's bantamweight, so ban and bantamweight is absurdly deep. But he's going to be close. You you do what he's been doing, he's going to be he's due a bigger name next. Bare minimum. He's due a bigger name. Um, Elise Reed defeated Corey McKenna via split decision. There were two 29-28s for Reed and a 30-27 for McKenna. Clucky! The heck were you doing in London? Stupid chicken. There's no way to justify 30-27 for McKenna. You want to argue 29-28 McKenna? I don't agree, but I can see... I was 30-27 Reed. Uh, there was one of those rounds that I wasn't sure about... I forget which one. Uh, maybe the first. It might have been the first. Was it the first or the second? I don't know. There was one. The The fight went as follows. Reed kept landing punches to McKenna when they were on the feet. She had a better feeling for distance, was better about moving in and out, and kept landing a lot of straight right hands just over and over again. Uh... Then McKenna would get a takedown and kind of ride out periods of time in full guard. Um, one of those rounds, there was enough top control time to muddy the waters sufficiently to where I don't disagree with giving it to McKenna. The other two rounds, however, I want to say it was one in three that I was, that was pretty clear. The takedowns from McKenna didn't amount to anything. They didn't last all that long. And she just kind of got tuned up on the feet. Um, yeah, that 30-27 is horrendous. It is a horrendous scorecard. I forget which judge gave it. I want to say Derek Cleary. Which wouldn't be surprising because he kind of sucks. Uh, but I was terrified they were going to job read out on those scorecards, man. She deserved to win that fight. And kicking everything off, Mohamed Makayev defeated Cody Durden via guillotine choke 58 seconds of the first round. Came out, very quickly hit a really nice switch flying knee. Dropped Durden, grabbed a guillotine choke as Durden tried to take down. Rolled through into the top position. Did some nice grip adjustment to keep the choke on the whole time. Uh, led to the tap. Makayev was a very decorated amateur MMA fighter. Uh, undefeated now. Uh... This was a good win from him. Uh, and flyweight at the moment could always seem to use an injection of talent. So, good win. It was a solid win. As for your bonuses, there was no fight of the night, which I thought did Shore and Valley have a little dirty, to be candid. However, the UFC in its infinite generosity, by which I mean, here's a piece, here's a bit of performative art. Uh, here's a performative gesture that we're going to use to shut people up because the UFC, or not the UFC, um, Endeavor had their, um, uh, uh, like their investors meeting, right? Because they're a publicly traded company, so they're, um, they had their, uh, you know, uh, big doohickey. You know, I want to say it was, a, and they talked a little bit, not in detail about the UFC because they get to kind of, Blanket it as 
part of what they own, and as long as they're honest about what part of there's again, there's specifics about what they're allowed to share publicly versus what they what they aren't, and that's all weirdness about again privacy and uh, sec- and security within the. I mean, this isn't technically the securities industry, but you kind of get what I mean there. Like, th- there's stuff that's okay to talk about publicly. In fact, there's stuff that is required that you talk about publicly, and then there's stuff that not as much and the and they're not necessarily as required to go and on conference calls like this and whatnot into the nitty-gritty of what the ufc in particular brought to endeavor kind of thing um that said they they said that the ufc posted like their best year ever their best quarter ever something like that not surprising but the issue of fighter pay was brought up on this conference call and I don't think it's an entirely coincidental move that immediately around that the UFC goes, here, everybody that got a finish gets a $50,000 bonus. Because, yeah, everybody who got a finish was given a $50,000 bonus. Tom Aspinall, Arnold Allen, Patty Pimblett, Molly McCann, Ilya Teporia, Makwan Amirkani, Sergei Pavlovich, Paul Craig, and Mohamed Makayev. Here's uh, I've I'm not going to beat too much the drum about fighter pay again right here. Except to say the following One, I've become more and more convinced that the splitting of your fight purse into show and win is a at a bare minimum, a draconian practice that needs to be done away with, especially for newer fighters. Whatever you sign them to, double it. And then have this... yeah, th- Have this be the standard. You get a finish, you get a bonus. It's, uh... I, underst- I do understand wanting to use the bonus structure to incentivize fighters fighting in a way that continues to please the crowd. And like I, I get the logic, and I'm not even saying do away with it completely. I am saying maybe this should be more the norm. If you really want to incentivize people to get finishes, hey, every finish gets a bonus. Yeah? Uh, I, I guarantee you... Uh, that, I, can I do that? There's some game theory here that I'm not all the way familiar with. I find that to be a better system, and one that benefits the fighters more, and these are the people that are losing the most, and gaining the least in many respects. So, yep. Uh, so that was it. That was UFC on ESPN Plus 62. Thank you to everyone who followed along with my live coverage. I know there were at least a few of you. Thank you to everyone who read after the fact. Uh, that full report is available in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. So check it out if you are so inclined. You can find my round-by-round scoring and all the other, and clips of all the finishes that were made available via the via the uh, official Twitter accounts. All right, brief roundup for the rest of the combat sports world because again there was a bunch of stuff. Let's start with Glory 80. And the only really interesting thing here, we were getting a rematch between Badr Hari and um, a gentleman who beat him last, who is Polish. This took place in Poland. Let me see if I can bring up some specifics here. 
quick look here. Sorry. Glory kickboxing. Okay. Um, okay, this was... I might have to... Yeah, I have to correct myself. This was not in Poland. This was in Belgium. Um, we were some, we were in the midst of yeah a rematch between Badrhari and I cannot pronounce this gentleman's name until I hear it pronounced. I apologize. I'm gonna butcher it, but I'm gonna try. Um, last let's go with the last name because I'm pretty sure the last name is Rochek. Is how it would be pronounced. Um, you know, things were going okay for the event. Uh, Tiffany Van Soest scored a really nice uh, back kick to the body for a, a TKO. Then between rounds two and three, at the end of the second, I don't know what spawned this. There's some video evidence to suggest these were um, soccer hooligans. I don't know how clear that particular evidence is. I'm not up to date on how one determines uh, which club various soccer hooligans support. There are ways of doing this, of course, but I you got to be deeper into the culture of that than I am. So th there's some evidence to suggest that. And between rounds two and three, just started a riot. Uh not a large-scale riot in the sense that it, you know, spilled out and caused giant amounts of property damage, but a riot. Like, they started throwing chairs, and there were fights that broke out, and chairs were thrown in the ring. Stuff, again, stuff was thrown. It, they had to shut the whole event down. We didn't actually get to see the main event of Levi Ritkers and Jamal Ben Sadiq. Uh, crazy. That might be a first. For me, more or le watching more or less live. I've seen older events that were shut down by the police for safety concerns. In fact, uh, on more than one occasion, if you want to go in the Wayback Machine to like the 1920s, uh, heavyweight champion, the, the first uh, black Afri uh, black champion, uh, Jack Johnson, had more than one fight stopped by police. Uh, or the, you know, the sheriff or whatnot would uh, intervene and stop the fight. Uh, so it's happened. I've seen it. This is the first time I've ever seen it more or less live, where an event had to be stopped. Not just a fight, but the whole thing. Um, yeah, that was that was something. Uh, let's see what else. Um, we had the again here in the United States. We had the uh, national the national championships decided for collegiate wrestling. Uh. One of the ones I'm going to recommend that you look up. Uh, oh, I can't remember what this stands for. Crud. Uh, the one between, these are the university initials, so pardon me. Uh, I believe the University of North Carolina, so UNC. And I think Penn State. Uh, PSU, Penn State University. Forgive me. I, I, I'm going to assume Penn State because they just kind of run everything. Um, the match that those two gentlemen put on was high-paced scramble wrestling from start to finish. Great stuff. Uh, the one that might be the most notable um, at heavyweight... Heavyweight or super heavyweight? I forget how they break that up at uh, the American collegiate level as far as the weight classes go. 
Uh, one of the two, forgive me. It might be only at the international where they break heavyweight and super heavyweight, and then in the American collegiate system, heavyweight is everything over a certain weight. Um, sorry, the, the minutia of that is lost on me at the moment. But one of the heavier weight classes, at a bare minimum, Gable Stevenson uh, scored a win. Uh, he's you know, notable for being, and he was the most recent Olympic gold medalist, and his his last second win of that gold medal, if you didn't see that at the Summer Olympics a couple of years ago, in, in 20... Uh, yeah, it would have been 21. Because they postponed them from 2020, but they... Yeah. If you didn't see that, um, that was a great match. Uh, he wins again. I believe he was the reigning national champion. And this was his last time, so he retired after the fact and, per tradition, left his shoes in the ring. That's what wrestlers do. Uh, he is now, by all accounts, and I believe he signed uh, WWE bound. He will be entering the world of professional wrestling, where I'm sure he will go to NXT 2.0, be given a stupid nickname, spend a couple of months there, get called up, built up for a few weeks, debut, do nothing, and then get released, because that's just how these things go. Sorry, my uh, deep-seated cynicism with the world of professional wrestling is well-founded. But, so there were some great wrestling matches over there if you're so inclined to check those out. Uh, in the world of, in the world of freak show boxing, uh, Hafthor Bjornsson and Eddie Hall, two famous strongmen, both men have won the world's strongest man competition. Uh, I think Bjornsson more than once, but don't quote me. Um, these two had beef stemming... Ugh. It's complicated. It started at the World's Strongest Man that Eddie Hall won. The final event that they were doing to determine the winner, they, that would have you know, determined the winner between the two of them, was the Viking Press. There was a rep that Hafthor thought should have been counted for him that the judges ruled did not, leading to Eddie Hall winning. And... And Bjornsson was a little bit chippy about this, and somewhat understandably so. The calling of reps as far as the strongman, the world's strongest man competition goes is a little bit dicey. Um, this was exacerbated during 2020 when, prior to this, Eddie Hall had the record for the deadlift. He had pulled like 500 kilos. Um, which is 1,300 pounds, give or take. 12, 13, I forget the exact conversion rate at that when you get that many. But half a ton, almost. Right around there. Stupid amount of weight. Like, And he pulled that in the deadlift. And that was the record for human achievement. In 2020, um, Hafthor had... Now, obviously, because all of the scheduled competitions and meets were canceled... Hafthor at his own gym, he called a bunch of people in, uh, official regulators and whatnot, not nobodies. He, so he had official judges and whatnot come in, and he broke Eddie Hall's deadlift record. And frankly, if you look at how he did it, he could lift more. Like it, It's very, very feasible for him to lift even more than he did there. Eddie Hall got sore about this because, well, you didn't do it at an official meet and it shouldn't count and people were making exceptions because of the state of the world in 2020 and so these two have this bad blood so a couple of years ago they said hey let's fight 
Things got delayed for a variety of reasons, one of them being COVID. Um, Eddie Hall suffered a biceps injury as well. He's his, One of his biceps has been injured multiple times. I want to say his left. Um, don't quote me on that, but one of them has been injured many, many times. Uh, so they had their fight. Um, Half Thor won. Uh, watching that, it's obvious. Like, I'm not saying Eddie Hall didn't put any effort into his boxing training. I'm saying Half Thor took his more seriously, and that showed. Uh, if you're into the circus kind of sideshow thing, good, harmless fun. I'm not going to sit here and dump on it. There were no pretensions about it. It was what it was. If you want to have some fun with it, um, not only could you listen to, could you watch that, uh, Mark Radlich and Stuart Lang provided alternative com- alternative commentary for that particular event. So if you want to hear them kind of vamping because the streaming site that was hosting it <laughs> couldn't handle the traffic half the time, uh, that's over in the W2M network, and they have a good time. Uh, I think that was it. All right, that's it for the weekend as far as combat sports goes. I mean, there were a few other boxing matches, but you're not. I'm going to assume you're not terribly interested in hearing me talk about Edward Berlanga. So let's move on to preview this coming week. Uh, UFC on ESPN plus 63. Main event. I said said last week this was not the most appealing card on paper. I'm going to walk that back a little bit this week. I got a better look at this. This is still not going to be the flashiest card on paper, but... There are some definite gems on this card. So we're going to go, let's go down through the bout order as currently listed. I don't think this is the final bout order, but the UFC sucks about getting some of these things out. Main event, we do know this. Uh, Curtis Blades and Chris Dawkus. Dawkus fresh off of the loss to Derek Lewis. Whereas Blades uh, beat Jarzinho Rosenstroik. September of last year. I barely remember that that fight happened. <laughs> um, this is a reasonable fight for both men. Dawkins has fast hands, and he's a pretty accurate puncher. We haven't seen him have to fight a really good wrestler, and in terms of just wrestling, Blades is probably the best guy the UFC heavyweight division has at the moment. Blades has been a bit chinny, and... So, again, a reasonable fight. I don't know who to pick. I can see both men winning, which is the mark of a, again, mark of a good fight. I should pick Blades. He's bigger, and he's a good wrestler, and that's a thing that has troubled... that, that tends to trouble guys like Dawkins. Dawkins has good hands, though. And Blades is, I'm not going to say completely chinny, but once things stop going his way, that tends to snowball for him. Uh, Unless he just gets sparked. But otherwise, he kind of needs to keep building. And once things stop building in his favor, he struggles to regain it. Uh, Am I really going to pick Dawkus here? I'm going to feel, no, no. I'm going to pick Blades, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I'm not going to pick Dawkins and then watch that fight and go, you really, you idiot, you should have picked the wrestler. 
which I think is probably what might have what might happen if I just pick Dawkus. Not saying not saying Dawkus can't win, but as far as who I should pick, to the extent that my picks mean anything, um, I'm gonna lean towards Blades. I think he's more proven at this level, and I think he asks questions that we have not seen Dawkus answer yet. Uh, women's flyweight Joanne Wood and Alexa Grosso. Um, Grosso's on a two-fight winning streak, and she's looked pretty darn... That loss, um... She had a loss to Felice Herrig in her second UFC fight. Pretty bad. Beat Marcos. Uh, she got kind of ragdolled by Tatiana Suarez. Beat Karolina Kovalkiewicz. I thought she... I thought that fight with Esparza was a... should have been a draw. Straight up. Uh... I think that fact that it wasn't was a mistake. But her most two recent fights, she beat Ji Yun Kim and beat Macy Barber and beat both of them. They were decisions, but they were pretty clear. Uh, Wood, the former Joanne Calderwood, now she got married to Coach John Wood, over at um, Extreme. Uh, is that Extreme Couture? I uh, Syndicate, Syndicate MMA. That's it. I knew it was one of those uh, Vegas. She's on a two-fight losing streak. Now, the split decision to Lauren Murphy was a little bit bad. I thought she should have won that. Tyler Santos choked her out. Fair play. Um, this is a pretty significant test for Grosso. They've tried to get Grosso into the title picture more than once. Um, whether that's been fair to her development or not remains to be seen. I think this is another one of those instances where they're trying to they're giving her an opportunity to step up to a higher level of competition and prove she can succeed here. I'm going to lean Grosso. Um, I don't think Wood does all that great with people who can punch with her. Like, people who will do the kickboxing thing with her, she can hang. Pure punching, she's a little bit at a deficit. Both women are pretty good in the clinch. Yeah, I'm still going to pick Grosso, but... Uh, this is a, this is not a gimme. Not a gimme at all. Um, flyweight, poor Askar Askarov, who should be fighting for the belt. He absolutely should be fighting for the belt. <laughs> Instead, we get fight four between, we're probably going to get fight four between, uh, Davis and Figueredo and Alex Moreno. Brandon Moreno, excuse me, Brandon Moreno, not Alex. Um, yeah, he's fighting Kai Carroll France, who just, stopped uh, Cody Garbrandt. Uh, I'm not going to say that Kai Carter-France can't win this. That would be... That would be a, uh, a deeply disingenuous to how good a fighter Kai Carter-France is. But I've been on the Askar Askarov bandwagon, bandwagon for a while. I was very impressed, impressed with his UFC debut, which was a draw with uh, Brandon Moreno. Um, since then, he has beaten Tim Elliott, Alessandre Pantoja, and Joseph Benavidez. If you haven't seen some of his stuff, I don't. I think you can find it. Uh, some of his ACB fights. Um, assuming you don't have giant moral objections to that promotion's existence, I, uh, I guess. I mean, I don't mind watching. I don't mind watching the fights. Um, but I'm not going to speak for all of you. Uh, he tore through that promotion 
I mean, he tore through it before coming to the UFC. I'm picking Askarov, and I think he should fight for the belt. Like, I'm a big believer in his abilities. Um, Kai Kurt of France is going to give him is going to you know, give him a fight. That guy's nobody's easy out, and he finally. Kerefron seems to have finally found himself in the UFC. Um, he's, again, he's finished his last two opponents. Uh, I, just, I struggle to see him dealing consistently with the wrestling of Askarov, and that's what the guy does. So that's a pretty good fight. Um, I, I favor Askarov, but that's a good fight. Welterweight, our violence fight of the evening. Matt Brown and Brian Barberina. <laughs> Two hard-nosed, fight-at-all-ranges, get-in-your-face, technical brawlers. Uh, that's what these two guys are. This is about as can't as much of a can't-miss action fight as you're going to find. Uh, I, I can't wait. Like, that's such a good fight. Eileen Brown, but... That's a good one. That's a really good fight. So keep your eyes off for that one. Um, heavyweight. Alir Latifi and Alexi Olenek. This is an odd one. Um, I've been down on Latifi for a while, as a general rule. Olenek, I mean, he's kind of a gimmicky fighter at this point, you know, but it doesn't mean he can't win. <laughs> And I don't think Latifi is the kind of guy who's going to be able to really stop him. Like, for me, this is all about if this gets out of the first round. Because these guys both have very suspect cardio. I'm going to go with Olenek. Um, just because it kind of amuses me to do so, I guess. Uh, going with Olenek. Women's flyweight. Jennifer Maya and Menon Foro. Big step up for Foro. Um who is 8-1, uh, has had three really solid performances in the UFC, but uh, Jennifer Maya has fought for the belt and has fought a fairly high level of opposition for a, the most recent stint of her career. She's pretty darn good. Uh, Maya coming off of a loss to Caitlin Chukagian, beat Jessica I before that, and then prior to that was her loss for the title. Um, this is a big step up for uh, for all. I had too much on the downhill side of things. I'm gonna pick Fuero. Yeah, I. It's a bit Maya being on the downhill. It's also a bit of the matchup. And I think stylistically, this is gonna favor Fuero. Uh, but th this is a big, this is a significant step up in class for her, and it might be too much. We've seen plenty of fighters in this position get turned back, so. Welterweight, Neil Magny and Max Griffin. Neil Magny. <laughs> Coming off a win over Jeff Neal. I mean, he's 4-1 and one in his last five, only losing to Michael Chiesa. Uh, with some... Some not-so-impressive wins, some impressive wins during that stretch. Um, Griffin. Three-fight winning streak. 
I'm going to pick Magni, but I don't feel great about it. <laughs> Let's see. Lightweight, Mark Jacquesi and Vyacheslav Borshev. Oh, Borshev's UFC debut was not that long ago, if memory serves. Double check that. He either had it or he was supposed to have it. Uh, and I can't really remember which. Let's have a... Are they really... Hang on, are they really calling this um, UC Fight Night Columbus? Because they're in Ohio for this event. They're not back at the Apex. Huh. Yeah, all right. Uh, anyway. Sorry. Yeah, Borshev... Uh, he had his U yeah, he had his UFC debut earlier this year. If topology will start working properly. Yeah, he beat Dakota Bush. Ooh. Yeah, I remember that. He stopped him with a pretty nasty body shot. Uh, Mark Jacquesi is a much better level of opponent than his previous one. But the bloom's kind of off the rose for Jacquesi too. I'm gonna go with Borshev, but Jacquesi's athletic enough uh, and dangerous enough that he he could do that. He could pull that off. Women's bantamweight: Sarah McMahon and Carol Hosa. Jeez. Uh, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna pick McMahon, but. That's something of a dubious proposition at this point. I mean, that's that Hosa's, you know. Well, hang on. I'd be confusing her with somebody. Ooh, I am. Yeah, Hosa's on a pretty good winning streak and is 4-0 in the UFC. I'm still going to lean towards Mc... No, I'm not. I'm going to pick Carol Hosa. I I like Sarah McMahon, but I don't think I can pick her in good conscience at this point. Bantamweight. Here's one to keep your eyes on. Uh, Chris Gutierrez and Dana Batgari. Um, Bantamweight doesn't miss. as a division. Um, Gutierrez is on a pretty good winning streak. His only loss in the UFC was to Hani Barcelos in his debut. Since then, his only setback was a draw with Cody Durden. Um, there's a point deduction in there. Wasn't there? No. No, there wasn't. No, that was just a clear 10-8 round. The Brunson Shabazian card. Yeah, that card. That card fell apart. I vaguely remember that from, yeah, yeah. Not for a while, actually. It was August of 2020. Yeah, when the whole thing just... <laughs> they lost so many fights on that card, man. Yeah, there was just a pretty clear 10-8 round in there. Um, anyway, whereas Batgari, um had a setback in his debut against uh, Alatong Hele, but since then has stopped Guido Canetti, Kevin Natividad, and Brandon Davis. 
It's a good fight. I'm actually going to lean towards Bakary, but... Uh, that's a good one. Flyweight, Mateus Nikolaou and David Vorak. Let's see, too many reasons to pick against Nikolaou here. Yeah, Nikolaou's only loss in the UFC is Dustin Ortiz. And he's on a four-fight winning streak. Beat Tim Elliott his last time out. I mean, Dvorak's on a really long winning streak. 3-0 in the UFC. I'm still going to pick Nikolaou, but it's a pretty good fight. Now, flyweight... The flyweights are somewhat well represented on this card, believe it or not. And at featherweight, Luis Saldana and Bruno Souza. We also will have somewhere on this card a middleweight fight between I'm going to butcher these gentlemen's names and I'm just going to have to apologize for that. Good grief. We have Alice Cobb uh, Kirozev and Denis Tulini. Tulian? Um, these, are, these gentlemen are both Russian. Depending on where Dennis is from, I'm not even, I'm not even pronouncing Dennis right. Um, that would be spelled, pronounced very differently. Again, depending on where he is from in Russia, because Russia is huge. Um, Hirozev, I feel pretty confident pronouncing. Um, uh, Hirozev is 13 and 0. Tuilian is. I'm just gonna. I apologize. When I hear it pronounced, I will do my best to pronounce it properly, but until then, I'm just going to do my best. Uh, he is 10 and 5. Probably going to lean towards Hirozev. And then, again, the aforementioned... Sorry, I was talking about uh, Saldana and Souza. Um, Bruno Souza... He lost last year to Melsic Bagdasarian in his UFC debut. Whereas Saldana... Lost to Austin Lingo. Beat Jordan Griffin before that. Hmm. Probably go with Saldana. Yeah, go with Saldana. And then again, I mentioned before, but I'll, I'll lean towards Hirozev in that uh, the Battle of the Russians. So, not the, again, not the flashiest card, but you've definitely got some solid, solid fights on, on that card on Saturday. So let's hope they hold together. Uh, all right, let's move on. And I, sorry, I will be covering that in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com per usual. So stop by, say hello, always appreciated. Okay, let's do some news. Uh, okay, let's start with this. Conor McGregor has started making noise that he wants to fight Kamaru Usman for the welterweight title when he returns. Usman's response was to laugh and ask if people really wanted to see a murder scene in the octagon. Connor trying to jump the line again. It's not surprising. He should not be allowed to. There is no case for this. He has not... He has... I can't say he's never won at welterweight. He beat Cerrone there. But... He's on a losing streak. He has no record of achievement in the division outside of fighting another blown-up lightweight for, in a one-off. And there's plenty of viable... Let's say that given what Usman's done. Hang on. There's at least two to three other guys who should be up after... Who should be up next. The UFC indicated they're going to try and do um, Usman versus Leon Edwards, which is fine. Edwards has deserved that title shot for a while now. Uh... Even after Edwards. And I think Usman wins that fight, just for the record. 
Uh, I I pick Usman to beat pretty much everyone in that division at this point. But even after that fight with uh, Edwards, oh, who's on the come up? There's at least two guys who I was looking at the other, I was talking about the other day. Uh, quick double check. I mean, you've got Burns. Burns is going to fight Hamzat Shemaev. And if Burns wins, he could easily get another shot at the belt. Bilal Muhammad is going to have a rematch with Vicente Luque at one of his upcoming events uh, this year. If Muhammad wins, he's a, one of the few guys who I don't think has fought Usman. You got Sean Brady still coming up. Um, not in the immediate sense. You got Shem Look, Hamzat Shemaev might force the issue. If he if he beats Gilbert Burns, who is currently ranked number two, and if he really beats him, like that might force the issue. Not guarantee, but it might. So we've got guys in this weight class. We don't need Conor McGregor trying to parachute in. McGregor's just doing what he usually does and is looking for the shortest path to the biggest payday. I mean... The, I, I don't even really want to dignify that beyond that. I, I know that gained a bit of steam. Right around the same time, for some reason, the notion of, you know, Colby Covington should move up to middleweight and fight Israel Adesanya. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, one, I don't think he's big enough. There are some... People don't... People forget this sometimes. The difference between welterweight and middleweight is 15 pounds. There are some very, very large men at middleweight. And Colby is... He's a slightly larger welterweight, but he would be a small middleweight. Now, that's not to say there aren't things you could do to make up for that differential, but it would be real. Uh, I'm not quite sure where that notion started getting floated, but middleweight's got contenders. We don't need that. Welterweight has contenders. We don't need McGregor. I mean, maybe there's some little bits of backdoor talk with the UFC trying to talk. Because uh, Usman's still occasionally making noise about boxing Canelo, which I don't agree. I don't agree with Dana White all that often, but when he's right, he's right in the sense that that's a silly proposition and Canelo would smoke him. Look, Usman would go out there, he would make more money than he's made in his last, like, two or three UFC fights combined. But Canelo is maybe the best boxer in the world. And <laughs> Usman is a very good mixed martial artist. But those are not the same thing. And look, to be abundantly clear, if Canelo came over to fight Usman in MMA, that would go very, very badly for Canelo. But he would never take the pay cut to come to the UFC. Canelo makes stupid amounts of money. Uh, it would go badly for Usman, but hey, if it would also be his biggest payday ever. So maybe there's a little bit of, hey, if we can give you a McGregor fight... You know, that's kind of like uh, it's kind of like a Canelo fight. No, no. But y you can kind of see that maybe some of the impetus is we can 
make some noise about getting this guy a big fight, and it will help placate him. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Usman's made, Usman's been pretty clear that, you know, he's not going to do this forever. And he is aware of the limited shelf life that goes into fighting, so. I'm not saying the man's going to retire tomorrow, but he strikes me as a guy who very much has an exit strategy in mind. Just put it like that. Uh, yeah, I think that was the only... I was going to talk about Ngannou's knee surgery, but I did earlier, so we'll leave that. Uh, that's all I've got at the moment. Let's check Twitter, see if anything crazy is broken MMA-related, and if not, we will do plugs and get out of here. Nope, nothing new. So, let's do plugs. Uh, this week is going to be a busy one for me. My stuff last week was kind of the usual... Uh, spade of professional wrestling and then MMA coverage this week, however. I got a lot of podcasts. Monday, in addition to covering AEW's Dark Elevation when that goes live, I will be on a TV party tonight with myself, Mark Radulich, and Ronnie Adams discussing the Amazon Prime series, animated series, The Legend of Vox Machina. So, if you're interested in that, the we're going to get together and review it. Tuesday, a Damn You Hollywood uh, double shot for Pixar's Turning Red and the other Disney Plus exclusive movie that was released recently, a, another cheaper by the dozen movie adaptation. Yeah. Look, I'm going to go into more detail, but I'm going to save you all a bunch of time on the off chance that someone listening to this was potentially going to watch the Cheaper by the Dozen remake starring Zach Braff and Gabrielle Union on Disney Plus. Don't. It is awful. Wednesday, I will be on the Metal Hammer of Doom talking about Sabaton's new album, The War to End All Wars. Thursday will be a dis- will be a TV party, two of those this week, for Disenchantment Part 4 on Netflix. Uh, that will be... I think it's just me and Mark. And then, I actually don't have something on Friday at the moment. Then, uh, other things to look at for throughout the week. Thursday, whatever MLW releases. And then Friday, WWE SmackDown as they continue to try and build towards WrestleMania in a couple of weeks. And Saturday, UFC and ESPN Plus 63. So, be on the lookout for all of that. I am a busy, busy boy this week. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all so very, very much once again. Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.